a devoted heart. That is, this is kind of the title, the theme for um, today's talk. It's kind of hopefully will. So I'm trying to find my page. I've lost it. So yes, how do we keep our hearts devoted to God? As a Christian, we know life brings difficulties and challenges, and our hearts become easily distracted, easily complacent in our faith rather than devoted. So tonight, hopefully, we will see some ways how do we keep our hearts devoted towards God, going along the path of faith without getting distracted by the things that are secondary to God. Um, but before we do that, we'll just pray again. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts to what you have to say. Challenge us if we need to be challenged. Encourage us if we need encouragement. May the Holy Spirit just apply your word to our lives today. Help us to enjoy you as our God, as you have revealed yourself to be through the pages of scripture. May we see more of who we are and more of who you are as well. Amen. So, when I was 17, I was in the Lake District on my gold Duke of Edinburgh. It was the first day of hiking and we were going down the hill about 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes from our campsite when we saw one of the teachers coming over the hill towards us. He approached us and he said, boys, do you know where you are on the map? Yes, we replied, got the maps out, showed him we think we're here, about 10 minutes from the campsite, we'll be, you know, in an hour, the tents will be up, we'll be having our dinner. And the teacher turned to us and he said, boys, you're not even on the map anymore. He said, in fact, you're not even in the same county. You're so lost. You've been walking the wrong way for three hours without realizing it. You've wandered off the path completely. And this is kind of how we find the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 7. They have wandered off the proverbial path. Although they think they're God's people, they're not living in a way that shows it. In chapter 4, um, Andy preached on it a few weeks ago, we see the Israelites and they use the Ark of the Covenant kind of like a magic box to enact God's will in a battle. The Ark gets captured by the Philistines, I think Marty preached on it last week, and they soon, but the Philistines soon return the, the Ark to Israel because they can't handle the holiness of the Ark. And chapter six ends with the Ark back in Israel. But as we read, the Israelites in fact, have the same response to the ark as the Philistines do. They can't handle the holiness of it. They actually want it sent away like the Philistines. At the end of chapter 6, the Israelites send the ark up a hill into obscurity where it remains until the time of David. They send the representation of God's throne away up a mountain out of sight and out of mind. So as you can kind of tell from the start of this passage, the Israelites' hearts are far from the Lord. This is a nation that has been called to bless other nations with God's presence. They are called to be God's representatives on earth, but instead of blessing other nations with the knowledge of God, they are in fact adopting practices of these pagan nations. In verse three, it hints that they've accepted Baals and Ashtaraths and worship them 
instead of the one true God. But are people who are meant to be devoted to God, Israel or anything but? Apart from a few key figures in the book of 1 Samuel, the people are largely distant from God. So we, we come asking, how do they once more align their hearts to the Lord of the Bible? Um, we'll look at a few ways this passage shows us how Israel once again devote their hearts to the Lord. So the first point is the people remembered who they are. This is about 20 years after the previous chapter, as it says. Samuel is now a full adult. We left him in chapter 3 as a little boy. But he's been a prophet to the people over these last 20 years, presumably preaching the word of the Lord to them, urging them to turn their hearts back to the Lord. And at the end of verse 2, we see, um, And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. By some work of the Holy Spirit, Israel have realized that they are in some way sinners, that they have broken God's law, rejected his rule in their lives. So they come to Samuel with their laments. They come with their mournings, as it says in verse 2. And what does Samuel say? In in verse 3, Samuel says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. Samuel tells the people to prove these laments are real. To turn back to the Lord, to put away these idols, and to worship God alone. Because the worship of the Lord is not an add-on, it's not an additional thing to their lives. It's not something you can mix with other ways of life. We remember the first commandment, it is that you shall have no other gods before me. Because there is a exclusivity when it comes to worshiping God. Samuel says for Israel to come to God, they need to leave these other things behind. They need to engage their whole lives to the worship of God because it is an all or nothing thing. It is not just for Sundays. It is not just when life gets tough. When we know the Lord, the knowledge of who he is should affect every aspect of our lives. So Samuel, this is what he tells the people, but he also assembles the people. He says, assemble all of Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And then going on in verse six. um, When they assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. They gather together to confess their sin, an acknowledgement of how they have acted against God, and they pour out water and fast. These are outward expressions that they are, you know, inwardly pouring their hearts out to God, or that they are they're fasting because they are inwardly hungry for God, that they're reliant on Him as they're reliant on food. And they confess their sin. They realize how far from the path they are. They're not even on the map anymore. They realize who they are as sinful human beings. Human beings that have contaminated their worship for the last so many years with worship of other gods, with false practices, 
And not only do they worship other gods, they also do not worship the Lord and how he should be worshipped. Um, so they gather together to pour out their hearts to God and ask for forgiveness, to turn their hearts back to him once more, to hunger after the Lord once more. So the first point of being devoted to God is to realize who we are. Because as Jesus says, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. You only appreciate a cure when you realize you have a need for it. And we are sinful, flawed human beings. We easily corrupt our lives and worship our other, of other things that are not God. Money, power, importance, relationships, careers. We also do not worship God with the attitude he is due. We do not love the Lord with all our hearts. The only person to ever do that was Jesus. We miss how far short we fall of the standard God sets and what he desires. A lot of people, Christians, non-Christians, they don't like talking about sin today. We don't like to acknowledge it, even as Christians in our lives, that we sin against the Lord. Some people say, let's not focus on sin, but let's focus on God's love or mercy or kindness. But we only see God's love or mercy or kindness when we understand our sin. Like this firework is full of beauty, of wonder, but if you see it on a normal bright sunny afternoon, yes you can see it, but it is only in the dark night sky that you really can appreciate what it is. In the same way when we as human beings, when we realize who we are, and the darkness our own sin creates in our lives, then we allow God's light and his glory to shine in our lives all the more brightly. Because God is almighty, he is the giver of all good things, and he longs for us to be in relationship with him. He longs to forgive our sins, and he wants us to come, as the people of Israel do here, to pour our hearts out before him, to hunger after him once more. Anyway, the story moves on. Um, the Philistines have moved in to attack Israel while they're vulnerable, as we read in verse seven. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Fear goes through the whole nation of Israel. The Philistines are coming to kill them. They're here, they're vulnerable to attack, and this threat is coming for them. So the Israelites, they gather around Samuel, and they, what do they say? They say to Samuel, verse eight, they said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. They come to Samuel, to intercede for them between them and God. Which is a strange thing. Why are they coming to Samuel? Because remember this is the Old Testament. We remember that the Israelites, they know who God is. They know God as a holy God. A God that cannot tolerate sin and cannot be approached by sinful man. Because in the Old Testament, 
a, a normal human being could not approach God. We, we, a few months ago in church, looked at the book of Leviticus. Leviticus answers this question, how can a sinful people approach a holy God? And Leviticus gives us answers as through rites, through rituals, through sacrifices. And importantly in Leviticus, we see there is a need for a mediator, someone to bridge the gap between God and man. Someone to represent sinful people before God. Um, to act like a bridge across the chasm between God and man. Here in this story, Samuel acts as the priest, as the mediator between the people. We see in verse 9, um, then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord on Israel's behalf. Because Samuel remembers who God is and he knows that God is holy and cannot tolerate sin, Samuel knows sin must be atoned for, that there is a price to be paid for sin. Israel have just confessed their sins before the Lord and because of that sin, they deserve death and the wrath of God. Israel need someone to take their place. They need a substitute. And here Samuel offers God the lamb as a sacrifice in place of the people. The Philistines are coming and the people deserve to die because of their sin. And what Samuel is doing here is he is asking God to accept the life of this lamb for the life of the people. And God answers Samuel in verse 10. It says, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle, but that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic. God, he accepts this lamb as a substitute. He spares the live, lives of his people and he gives them victory over their enemies. So you may think, how does this apply to us today? Well, we are in a similar situation to Israel. As we've talked about, we know who we are. We know that we are sinful human beings and we remember that God is holy, that he cannot tolerate sin and therefore he cannot tolerate us on our own. We need atonement for our sin. We need someone to cry out to the Lord for us as Samuel does here. The second point is that we remember who God is. He is not a God that we can take lightly. When we talk about God being holy, holiness is another word for weightiness. That the God that we worship is a weighty God. When we talk about the chasm between us and God, it is not because, and how you cannot tolerate sin, it is not to make us feel bad or inadequate, it is to emphasize how awesome and almighty and righteous he is compared to us. How so other he is to us. But the God of the Bible is so, ama is so amazing that even though the gap is so great, he makes a way for us to be in relationship with him and it is through what he has done. We talked earlier about how Leviticus is the Old Testament answer to the question, how can we as a sinful people approach a holy God? Well, in the New Testament, we have the book of Hebrews. 
It is the early Christian's answer to the book of Leviticus. And while Leviticus' answer is through rites and rituals and sacrifices in order to approach God, the book of Hebrews answers it simply. It is because of Jesus. If we look in Hebrews 9, and I did not realize that was going to be so small, but um, Hebrews 9 says, talking about Jesus, he is the mediator of a new covenant and that Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We have Christ as our mediator. He is the one that cries out to God on our behalf. And just as Samuel does here in this passage, he offers blood as a payment for sin. But it is not the blood of an animal or a lamb, it is his own blood. Hebrews 9 goes on to say, he, that is Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus, in this story, Samuel is the mediator, the lamb is the sacrifice. Jesus is both the mediator like Samuel and the sacrifice like the lamb. It is through Jesus that we have access to a holy God. It is, only, it is Jesus that bridges the gap that we have between sinful man and a holy God. And, and it is not because of anything we have done. It is because everything that Christ has done. He, what he has done saves us from death and brings us to, into relationship with him eternally. This is the gospel, Christ in our place. Charles Spurgeon says, we can stand before God as if we were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Christ is our ultimate substitute. He is our ultimate sacrificial lamb. With Samuel as the mediator in this story, God gives Israelites victory over the Philistines. With Christ as our mediator, we have victory over death itself. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament up to this point, you'll be, if you are familiar with the Old Testament up to this point, you will be familiar of this cycle Israel goes through of suffering oppressors, then coming back to the Lord who rescues them and then turning back to the Lord once more before they once turn away from the Lord. So when we read this story in chapter seven, we should have in the back of our minds how long is this going to last this time? How long will Israel stay devoted to the Lord? And this is something Samuel knows as well. He knows the hearts of the people all too easily turn away from the Lord. Um, so after this victory with the Philistines, Samuel erects a monument as we read in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far has the Lord helped us. Why did Samuel do this? This was either a big stone or a pile of stones, and he sets it up as a reminder of Israel that the Lord has helped them. So hopefully this next picture will shed some light on it. This is Independence Monument in Kiev. Obviously it has more significance now than it maybe did a few years ago. This is a symbol of Ukrainian freedom. It points to their past liberation from the old USSR and to a future continued freedom as a Ukrainian people. 
And in fact, during the initial months of the Russian invasion, the pillar was included on a list to be protected from shelling because of its significance as a visual reminder to the, to the Ukrainians of what they had done in the past, in their past liberation, and to encourage them for the future, for their future continued freedom. So this is kind of what Samuel is doing with this stone. The stone is a reminder not of what the Israelites have done, but what God has done, that he has liberated them. You'll notice the stone is called Ebenezer. Thus far has the Lord helped us. That it remembers the past of how the Lord has been with Israel as its helper. With them, you know, yes, we think of this passage where he frees them from the Israelites, but it goes further back to how God has been with them and liberated them through the Exodus, through the books of Joshua, through Judges. It reminds Israel of the past and it encourages them for the future, for the Lord will continue to help Israel as he did in this day over the Philistines. So we think of our own lives. We, like the people of Israel, we are prone to forget we need constant reminders in our lives that thus far God has helped us. Because in the church today, we have an Ebenezer stone. We have something like this that reminds us of how thus far has the Lord helped us. And it is the cross. The cross is the ultimate expression of how God helps us. It's through the cross that people who are dead in their sins, whose hearts were not devoted to God, can have a relationship with God. It reminds us of our past liberation, our liberation from sin, and our continued freedom, our freedom in Christ. When we come to church every week, while it is nice to have a cup of tea, it is nice to chat to friends or sing songs, or learn something new, it is not the primary reason that we gather. We gather as the people of God every week to remind ourselves what God has done through Jesus. We come to remind ourselves of our past liberation from sin and our future freedom in Christ. We come to church to worship Jesus, our savior, our mediator, our lamb, as the one who cries out to God on our behalf. Last week, um, there were thousands of marathon runners through this city, and every finisher had been devoted to running a marathon for months. They trained, they got up early, they went on long runs on Saturdays, their eyes fixed on the prize of finishing. And in, he in Hebrews, the Christian life is likened to a race. And it uses this analogy to kind of answer the question we've looked at tonight. How do we stay devoted to God? And he answers it like this. It is, let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. While our goal is different than finishing our marathon, we do have a goal in the Christian faith and it is not a time or a thing, it is a person. Our goal is to know Christ, to know him as our risen savior. So fix your eyes on Christ. In Jesus, we see our ultimate sacrifice for sin, 
our perfect representative to God on our behalf and a victory over sin and death that we could not dream of gaining by ourselves. Let us just pray. Heavenly Father, we become before you as people who confess that we sin against you. We break your law, our hearts turn away from you and towards other things less than you. We know you are holy and righteous. We know that you cannot tolerate sin. So we thank you that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We thank you for Jesus, both our mediator and our sacrifice, the one through whom we have been saved. May our hearts be devoted to you because of who you are and what you have done in redemption history and in our lives. May we turn our hearts away from the secondary things and serve you alone. Fix our eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.